0: Hello everyone and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan and this is the third part of our short four-part series on missing the mark and hitting it. The topic is still sin, as many of you will be horrified and very unimpressed to know. And so far we've covered two of the four core characteristics of this nasty propensity that we have to muck things up. The first is that sin is disordered desire. In short, sin goes against a decent and life-giving ordering of things, not just by creating disorder, but often by replacing a good order with a bad order. The second characteristic, which we covered in the previous episode, is that sin works against nature. What is natural, for example, is the desire to move towards wholeness and fulfillment. What is unnatural Is the desire to care less about wholeness and fulfillment than about immediate gratification. And in this episode, we'll look at the third characteristic of sin, namely that it is against reason. Here's an image that may help to explain this one Imagine someone who is very ill, someone who desperately needs to seek medical attention. He's in a bad way, he's coughing up blood, has a terrible fever walks bent over like an old man even though he's 20, and you say to him, shouldn't you see a doctor? And he says to you, why, I'm perfectly fine. This may seem a bit extreme, so think about this example instead. Imagine someone you care about who for a long time has been making decisions that in no uncertain terms will lead him into financial ruin. So you do what anyone would do when they see someone they care about walking towards a precipice. You tell him what you've observed, what makes sense and what doesn't. And in particular, you explain to him why you think his decisions are not going to be good for him. The truth is on your side and reason too, but the guy just can't listen to reason. He's convinced 100% that his business acumen will win in the end. The trouble is, he has no business acumen and is not listening to reason, which means, ultimately, that everything you predict does, in fact, come to pass. He's been thinking a great deal, but not very well. He is working on the assumption that what he knows is enough, even though what he knows is not very much at all. This is obvious, of course, to everyone except him. Make no mistake, though, we are all like that man. I'm sure you have examples from your own life that are analogous to this, where you have tried very hard, at least as you've seen it, to understand something very well, and you still haven't been able to find rhyme or reason in it in the end. You've pursued the truth, or at least that's what you thought you were doing, and you've ended up believing a whole bunch of terrible lies. You could sum all of this up by means of a very simple idiom which I've come up with namely, that zombies don't know that they are zombies. Try explain to a zombie that he shouldn't want to eat you or your precious brain, and the zombie is not going to listen to reason. From his zombie perspective, eating you and your brain is the most sensible thing he could do. And the problem is not just the fact that the zombie doesn't understand. The problem is far deeper along the lines that even if he had the ability to understand, the capacity to see why you're asking him not to devour you, he still will not understand. Something is in the way that isn't all that easy to pinpoint. Let's pause to contemplate that little phrase for a moment, listen to reason. I've used it already and it gets to the heart of what we're talking about here because sin is against reason. But what does it mean to listen to reason in the first place? For starters, let me explain what reason is not. Reason is not pure, cold rationality, as a great deal of modernist philosophy tends to have it. Reason is not merely the ability of the mind to reduce experience to a series of abstractions divorced from our embodied existence and our emotional experience. Reason is not merely some inductive, deductive, or abductive process, even if such processes can be a part of reason's functioning. Reason, as I mean it here, is therefore decidedly not the opposite of feeling. In fact, some of the most irrational people I've met are those who are so committed to rationality that they have absolutely excluded much of their own human experience from their various calculations. For our purposes, reason is also not a controlling phenomenon. I know that many of us can and do use our ability to reason as a means by which we can control the world to keep it safe for us. We make the world reasonable, so to speak, in order to function effectively in it. Once again, maybe this is part of what reason can do, but it is by no means the whole story. So, briefly, listening to reason cannot merely mean becoming a rationalist. If anything, becoming a rationalist can often be the very opposite. Of listening to reason. To explain what I mean by reason, it helps to begin with another question, namely the question of what is truth? Well, I'm going to work very briefly with Thomas Aquinas' take on truth, which is basically this all that is real is true. That may sound like a tautology, but it is ingenious, and it's definitely more profound than I'll be able to explain in this very short time we have. All that is real is true means that truth resides in the totality of what is, in the total reality. Things that exist are true by virtue of the fact that they possess being, which is to say that things are true to the extent that they have being. They are also good because they have being, which is nice to keep in mind. Things are therefore true on two levels. First, in themselves, which is to say that things are true because of their essential reality. And second, they are true because the perceiving mind is able to recognize their reality and participate in it. If I say I'm sitting on a chair, I'm speaking the truth, not just because I'm pointing to something very obvious and then capturing it in a very banal way through language, rather I am speaking the truth because I recognize the reality of the chair by my very being as well as by my words. And even if I'm not working in concert with reality, St. Thomas's definition of truth presumes in any case that the reality of things is found primarily in their being known by God. So why are things real? Well, because God gives them reality. To put it a little bit more awkwardly, God knows them into reality. Another Thomas, namely Thomas Merton, puts it like this, truth in things is their reality. In our minds, it is the conformity of our knowledge with the things known about reality. In our words, it is the conformity of our words to what we think. In our conduct, it is the conformity of our acts to what we are supposed to be. Merton's language here of conformity may sound a little bit stale to you, but the idea of conformity is not a cold and impersonal one. The idea is rather one of dynamic participation, so it's, it's better to think of a dance than it is to think of someone, you know, doing maths equations on a, on a chalkboard. Truth is less about precision articulation, although this may, again, be a part of truth-telling, but rather it's one of participating, which is partly why it is possible to talk of fairy tales and imaginary worlds, like those of, say, Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, as true. They are not factually true, but conform to the pattern of reality that we are seeking. Often, surprisingly, some fiction conforms to the pattern of reality better than some non-fiction. Which gets me to the main idea here regarding what reason is. For our purposes, I mean reason as that fundamental receptivity to reality that all of us have. We are open to the real when we can receive the love we need and give the love we need to give. We are receptive to reality when we can enter into the flow of a piece of music and be bowled over by its sheer aesthetic beauty. Reason is receptivity to goodness too and also to truth. It's about harmony with the rightness of being. It is reasonable to be totally astonished by the sublime and it is also reasonable to enter into a debate about a difficult issue for the purpose of figuring out the truth. So To be true, to walk in the truth, is to allow for the fullness of what it means to be human, as unities of mindfulness, of playfulness, activity, spirituality, sexuality, embodiedness, and so on. So not listening to reason would then mean cutting ourselves off from reality in one way or another. Sin closes us off from the true. Joseph Pieper suggests that to say that sin is a violation of reason is to say that it goes against our better judgment, against conscience, and against any light that would help us to find our way through a dark world. Sin, as this human propensity to muck things up, blocks the way to the real. One example of this is the mere rationalist who shuts off anything that looks like unreason to him or her. And is even closed off to the possibility that his or her own account of the real is faulty. The new atheist is a classic example of this, but the fundamentalist religious person is often equally shut off in this regard. The mere rationalist, that is, the the rigid fundamentalist too, will be closed to even the slightest hint of a rationality that does not echo his or her own rationality. Even if it is a better rationality, meaning that it has a a greater openness to the truth. This is some of the trouble with making doubt too absolute. It is one thing to doubt something and then to take action to explore in order to figure out if that doubt is justified. And it is quite another thing to doubt something on principle and then refuse to explore any further. The first kind of doubt is reasonable because it is still open to reality no matter how that reality presents itself. The second kind of doubt is unreasonable because it wants reality to present itself only in a very particular way. And I think if we examine some of our assumptions, we will find that many of us have those little doubts wedged into our consciousness to prevent us from seeing certain things or to refuse to allow certain possibilities that reason may be providing. Again the key idea in all of this is that reason is about participation. Reason is not about controlling stuff by means of some hypothetical superior intellectual process but it is about working with the real. Truth involves an interweaving of mind and being. And this involves an ongoing receptivity to the numinous and the phenomenal, an openness to both the spiritual in the material and the material within the spiritual. At every moment, reason rises up to reach towards a greater wholeness. And so, by contrast, the unreason brought on us by sin produces fragments and fragmentation. It closes the box even before we've had a chance to open it. You can spot unreason pretty quickly in any verdict that has been reached without an openness to exploration. There are terrifying examples of this in totalitarian regimes, where people were held to be guilty of crimes against the state merely if they had been accused of a crime. You find some examples of this in Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. As in Kafka's nightmare story, The Trial, the accusation of guilt was sufficient to deem the poor protagonist guilty. The truth, as the story goes, was never even considered. Reason was shut down before it could have its say. Sadly, since there is nothing new under the sun, there are signs of this kind of thinking in some of the more disturbing forms of extremist feminism, for example, or other manifestations of identity politics, which should disturb people on all sides of the political spectrum, the accusation has become sufficient to prove guilt. The old idea of innocent until proven guilty has all but disappeared, which I take to be a sign not of mere ideological possession, although it is a sign of that too, but of the ancient concept called sin. Two things in particular are evident in this conception of sin as being against reason. The first is pride. The presumption that one knows what one does not is evidence of an ego that is disproportionately self-assured. Ironically, self-assurance is often a sign of of a kind of narcissism, and that in itself is a sign of repressed shame, but not always in in all cases, but it's, it's something to look out for. Pride comes before a fall, as the saying goes, because pride refuses to acknowledge the precipice that is in front of it. Pride asserts self over reality, and in the war between self and reality, it'll come as no surprise that reality is going to win. I can think of countless examples of where I've seen this happen. I've seen so many people get terribly badly hurt when they live according to an ideal that contradicts well, what seems to me to be an obvious truth, but clearly doesn't seem to be an obvious truth to the person who hurts themselves. I'm sure that you can think of examples of your own, from your own life and from the lives of people you know and love. The other thing that is evident in this conception of sin as being against reason is that of deceit. Sin will offer rationalizations, but not rationality. Sin will manipulate words without paying due attention to the world that the words are supposed to point to. Examples of this are everywhere too, such as when people deny that their actions against the environment are causing any real damage. If you work in academia or are a student, especially in the humanities, you may notice some traces of this alarming combination of pride and deceit. At least this is something I've noticed and it's something I'm Weary of uh, because, you know, it's obviously a trap I don't want to fall into. Academics are often very fond of parading non-knowledge as if it is knowledge, and unreason has in many academic circles become more fashionable than reason. Some of this, I think, has to do with the fact that there are particular discourses and ways of saying things in academia that lead academics to be less concerned with truth than they are with other questions. So they will ask questions about what influenced a writer or how any given statement is consistent with what that writer said in other books or what phase in the writer's development is is that statement um, consistent with um, or how it fits with the general history of thought and or there will be a question of of how any given phrase or statement or idea has been misunderstood, especially by other academics, um, because academics do like to puff themselves up quite a lot, often, ironically, because of uh, a very strong imposter syndrome. Um, there are ma- many other things that I could obviously say about this, but all of these tend to point to something that I think is at the root of why we shut reason down. And I think the core thing here is a lack of humility. The antidote to our unreason is not better reasoning. Better reasoning, as I've already hinted, doesn't tend to work nearly as well as we may want it to. What helps poor reasoning is a posture towards reality that allows genuine openness to that reality, genuine openness to what is true. When we acknowledge in Socratic fashion that we don't always know, it's then that we have a shot at learning something. I think of Jesus's critiques of the Pharisees and his encouragement to people to be like children. The trouble with Pharisees was how much they thought they knew, and being a child, the gift of it is that children te- tend to not be worried about how they fit into the the given hierarchy of things apart from the fact that they they are eager to learn, eager to be open to reality um when children shut down to certain things it it's often much more an indication of how close-minded their parents are than than an indication of what they are really like. I can speak from experience in the realm of academia um and and so i'm I'm thinking particularly of some conferences that I've been to. Sometimes, when someone says something I don't agree with, I tend to make a very concerted effort to hang back uh, for a moment. My gut may have just said to me that this person who is speaking is a fool, or he or she doesn't know what they're talking about, but then I don't pass judgment. That's what I mean by hanging back. Instead, I look at the judgment I've, you know, felt in my gut and I call it into question. I think instead then, That maybe the speaker isn't a fool and I am the, the fool. Maybe I don't understand what's being said. So, when the opportunity arises, I've become more comfortable with announcing my ignorance to the room. I tell the speaker that I don't understand and that there is something I think I'm missing, and I try to explain as best as I can what I need help in understanding. And a surprising thing often happens. Sometimes I actually learn something. It turns out in such cases that my original judgment wasn't right and I needed to just eat some humble pie and hear the speaker out. But sometimes it does happen that the speaker makes an interesting discovery. They discover that they didn't know what they were saying either. Um, Their words, they start to learn, were drenched in presumption. It's not always blatantly obvious that this has happened. Sometimes it just happens in the fact that they they cannot articulate what they mean, that there is some sort of gap in their knowledge. And and often I've spoken to people after after lectures or conferences and heard them say, well, you know, there is something they need to go and explore some more. And that is so fantastic. So either way, whether it is me learning something or the speaker learning something on the basis of my ignorance, an opportunity is opened up for us all to get just that one step closer to reality. I guess all of that is just to say that the remedy for any sin would be a virtue, but that I know doesn't really cover everything that it needs to. So in the next episode, I want to look at the final characteristic of missing the mark before talking a little bit about hitting it. We've looked at sin as anti-order, anti-nature, and anti-reason, so we'll be looking at the idea that sin is anti-God next. And then, obviously, at what's to be done about all of this mucking up. Cheers, everyone.